I uh, have to admit it, but sometimes um, I get a headache from a lack of caffeine. <laughs> um, and sometimes I crave a little bit of chocolate. Um, and <clears throat> more times than what is good for me, I, I also um, tell you I need a salt fix, you know, get some potato chips. Um, um, and every once in a while, um, still left over from my student ministry days, I, I have a thirst for Mountain Dew, um, you know. Um, but I got to tell you, I don't think I've ever really been hungry. Um, I, by hungry, I don't mean uh, just a growling stomach. Uh, I'm talking about when your body starts to actually cannibalize itself in order to keep itself alive. Um, I mean, I felt famished at times, and, and, and I've used words like, oh, I'm starving to death. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, ours is the only culture that can open a refrigerator that's stocked full uh, with abundance of food and look around and say, well, there's nothing in here to eat. <laughs> um, I mean, we are a uh, stuffed culture with food to spare. In fact, I, I would say we have food to waste. Have you ever uh, driven by a bakery or a grocery store, you know, late at night? I mean, bread and buns and cakes and pies and donuts, uh, you name it, items that have reached their um, end of their shelf life date, you know, they're, they're, they're thrown away. It's quite a culture we live in when you think about it. You know, bread to spare. Bread to waste. <laughs> Jesus came into a very different world than, um, than we know. Um, I don't know if um, we know uh, what it is to be two or three days away from starvation, but that's the kind of world that Jesus entered into. It's no wonder that Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, under the anointing of God under the driving direction of the Holy Spirit, went into the desert and went without food or water for 40 days. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's captured um, out of that, uh, that story, uh, scripture of uh, Jesus' temptation. Um, I think one of the reasons that Jesus went out in the desert um, was this, to know, <laughs> to know in his bones this world that he was ministering to. In the withering of his gut, in the um, uh, gauntness of his limbs, in the faintness of his <laughs> body, he got to know this world that is so hungry. No wonder Jesus put at the very center of the prayer. We just prayed, right? The prayer that he taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. That's how dependent that world was. Needed their daily bread. I mean, who prays that type of prayer here now? <laughs> um, in the day of wonder bread. You know, in the day of turtle bread just down the road from us. <laughs> It seems ridiculous to us, really. I, no wonder Jesus Christ said to the crowd, I am the bread of life. He knew that that would be a powerful image of good news to a hungry world. 
I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6 this morning, where once again we encounter a hungry crowd, a hungry world. Uh, Mark chapter 6. Over the last several weeks, if you have been with us, um, we've been talking about doing good. That's the title of our series, Doing Good. And we've discovered as we've gone through this um, a series that the reality that God's kingdom has come. Um, and you and I have been called uh, to partner with God to help bring about um, his kingdom in this world by doing good. We discover that doing good means seeing people as Jesus sees them and finding a way to bless them. And when we do good, <laughs> listen, we don't have to worry about trying to manipulate it so that, well, we could squeeze the gospel message in here or there <laughs> or advertise our church somewhere along the line. Oh, we can just do it as an act of mercy, doing good. Doing good without any strings attached, that's a powerful demonstration of God's kingdom to our world. And this morning, in this very familiar passage that we find here in Mark chapter 6, um, it's a, a very familiar story um, that we once again find Jesus doing good, blessing people just because, just because in order to give them a, a, a taste of the kingdom of God. Um, it's a story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, one of the reasons why this story is so familiar to all of us is because it's the only miracle of Jesus other than the cross and, the, and his resurrection in which we find in all four of the Gospels, um, which when you think about it, you say, why, why do all the Gospel writers um, include this story, the feeding of the 5,000? And... Um, it, it, evidently, because it's a significant story. Uh, one of the reasons is, I, I think it's because it's, it, it's a powerful way for God's sufficiency and, and God's character to be demonstrated. Mark introduces this story to us in um, chapter 6 here. Mark 6 starts it in verse 30. Look with me. Mark 6, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. <laughs> the context is the 12 disciples, they have returned from a short ministry, short-term ministry trip. They had... <clears throat> gone out, been sent out by twos, and they had been casting out demons. They had healed uh, many uh, who were sick, and they had preached the good news of the kingdom of God. And they had this great success, and they came back to Jesus with these great stories, but they also came back to Jesus worn out. I mean, it was so successful, Jesus recognizes that they need to get some rest. They had been peopled <laughs> to death. Um, and they were exhausted. They had been so busy, evidently, Mark tells us, that they hadn't even had a chance to eat themselves. Ministry could be like that. Now, listen, I've never run the 26 miles of a marathon, but they say there is a spot in the race when a person runs the marathon where they hit the wall, um, 
And I hit the walls. And I'm not talking literally hitting the wall. I'm talking about physically, emotionally, um, come to a place where they just want to quit. They just can't imagine going on. Um, and here's how a long-distance runner by the name of Dick Beardsley described hitting the wall. He said, it felt like an elephant had jumped out of a tree onto my shoulders, and I, it was making me carry it the rest of the way in. <laughs> hitting the wall is a very uh, real physical condition. I want to tell you, I, I think it can also happen in the soul. Um, spiritually speaking, sometimes we can just... Uh, hit the wall. We feel like an elephant has jumped on our back. We hit that, uh, I can't do it anymore, spiritual fatigue, and we just want to give up, we want to quit. I think that's a little bit of where the disciples were, what they were experiencing at that, at that moment when they came off this short-term ministry trip. They had hit the wall, so Jesus insists, hey, guys, let, let, let's get away. So they go on a retreat. They load up the boat and head off uh, up alongside the east coast of the Sea of Galilee to what they expect to be a quiet, um, undisturbed, you know, remote area. But see, privacy is hard to come by when you're having great success. Ever realize that? I mean, everyone is demanding a piece of you and of your time and of your energy, even if it's just to be in on the excitement. Uh, I mean, just think of the Super Bowl and all the energy that's involved with that. As they say, you know, where there is a fire, there is a crowd. And um, Jesus and his disciples, I got to tell you, they are on fire. <laughs> so the crowd, they, they follow the boat. They watch it along the shoreline. They watch it. And uh, as they are walking along the shoreline, they spread the news. And they pass through the towns and villages so that when Jesus and his 12 disciples finally land, the crowd was standing there, was waiting there, sitting on the shoreline. They were waiting there for them, 5,000 men, along with who knows how many women and children. The disciples' hearts you can just imagine they must have sunk when they stepped out of the boat. But Jesus' heart does something completely different. Look with me at verse 34. Look what it says here. When he went ashore, Jesus, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Once again, we see Jesus' compassionate heart. Literally, this word, um, translate compassion, means to be inwardly moved in order to do something about it. Jesus is deeply moved by human suffering. And so although his disciples are all worn out, overly tired, needing rest, Jesus would not, could not turn away that crowd because he says they were what? They were like sheep without a shepherd. That's a curious, um, unsettling word picture, don't you think? Sheep without a shepherd. They're helpless, scared, vulnerable. <laughs> They're literally lost sheep without a shepherd. 
they don't know where to find um, you know, water or, or where to find green pastures. Uh, they, they don't know uh, whether to stay put or to, to move on. They can't defend themselves. A flock of sheep without a shepherd would be as odd as a bus full of people without a driver. <laughs> a football team without a quarterback. Um, you know, a, a third class, a third grade classroom without a teacher. <laughs> seeing sheep without a shepherd would be as distressing as seeing a, a village without clean water. Babies without parents. As distressing as a nursing home without visitors. Uh, teenagers with no role models. A coffee barista <laughs> who doesn't know that she matters. But as the story here unfolds, um, Jesus, the, the compassionate one, right, steps into the gap. He's pictured as their shepherd. In fact, you read on this story and you find that Mark describes in unusual detail the scene with, with this green grass where the disciples arranged the people um, in orderly groups of 50s and 100s. It's as though Jesus was settling the crowd down in a pasture like a, a shepherd settles down his sheep. While Jesus has compassion on them, um, the disciples, on the other hand, they have a very different reaction. While looking at that very same crowd... Jesus sees a flock of sheep, but the disciples, all they see is a flock of hungry vultures. <laughs> I mean, just put yourself there. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. It's starting to get late, right? The shadows are lengthening. You notice people are getting hungry. You yourself getting a little hungry. And here you are, out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by 5,000 men and untold number of women and children, 5,000 plus people that are hungry, 5,000 plus people needing food. As disciples looked out in that crowd, they saw what you and I would see, a major problem. I mean, a major problem. This was a need. <laughs> they had no idea how it could be fixed. Someone needed to do something, but what could they do? I mean, what could anyone do? So the disciples, they approached Jesus and they advised him uh, to, to, to send them all back home. And Jesus responds, <laughs> Jesus responds, um, no, um, you give them something to eat. Listen to their response, verse 37. Look at their response. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? <laughs> In John's version of this story, the Gospel of John, you, you find this version of the story. He reveals that it is the disciple Philip who was the, the one who responded like this. I kind of I laugh. I, uh, because Philip is so much like us, isn't he? Philip is evidently a bean counter. 
Um, he takes out his calculator and he begins, you know, punching numbers on his calculator. And to him, the question that Jesus is asking is a, is a budget question. It's about logistics. Then he looks up and says, we can't do it. My calculator says we can't feed this crowd. It would take just too much. We don't have it. Philip measures the need, right? And since the need is just overwhelming, he resigns with a sense of hopelessness. It can't be done, Jesus. It can't be done. I relate to that, don't you? I look at all the problems in our world. I look at all the problems around the city of Minneapolis. <laughs> I throw my hands and I, I cried, but what can I do? What can anyone do? <laughs> and to my question, Jesus simply asks a game-changing question. I want you to notice this. He asks, well, what do you have? See, we tend to focus on what we don't have, right? I mean, we don't have time. We don't have money. We don't have training. <laughs> I mean, we don't have the gifts of mercy, we don't have an outgoing personality. I mean, we're like a bunch of first graders who, when the teacher asks, how many of you brought your lunch today? Raise your hands and say, not me. <laughs> Jesus is interested in what we don't have. All he asks us is what we do have. He's not asking you if you have 40 hours a week or, uh, or 20 hours to serve people or even 10 He's just asking if you have an evening to invite a, a, a neighbor over for dinner or an hour to go visit someone in a hospital or, a, or a, a few minutes to email someone an encouraging word. He's not asking if you have thousands of dollars to give to the poor. <laughs> now, he's asking if you can skip maybe going out to eat once or twice this month in order to support uh, an orphan overseas. He's asking if you have enough money to buy some groceries maybe for someone who can't afford them. He's not asking if you have been to seminary or if you have a degree in counseling. <laughs> no, he's simply asking if you can offer someone a listening ear or sit on the floor and play with children in a shelter or, or, or read the Bible to someone in a nursing home or in a hospital. See, Jesus isn't asking uh, to give what you don't have. He's simply asking, what do you have? Go see. And he's asking us to look again and, and, and see what we do have and then, and then do something good with it. <laughs> and he'll take it from there. Look what happens to the disciples. They, they think they have nothing, right? But then they go looking around, um, and what they discover is there are five loaves and, and two fishes. Two fish. It's the ancient equivalent, you know, you think about it. It's the equivalent of maybe a, a peanut butter sandwich and a bag of chips. <laughs> um, a ridiculously small amount in the face of such a, a, such a huge need. 
But then they place it in Jesus' hands and something remarkable happens. Look with me at verse 41. After, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and sat before the people and he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of, fi- of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. <laughs> when Mark says here, um, he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, he, he using that word, the, the word gave there is used in the imperfect tense, which means that he kept on giving the loaves and the fish to the disciples. In other words, as he held that simple meal in his hands, he broke off pieces and gave it to them and kept on doing it. Alexander McLaren said this, he said, the pieces grew under Jesus' touch and the disciples always found his hands full when they came back with their own empty. There was an was never an increase in the amounts in his hands, but there was a continual supply until everyone had their, their fill. I mean, you think about it. Here was the, the creation miracle literally taking place in the hands of Jesus, right? People were hungry. They needed to be fed. So what did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, well, what do you have? Five loaves, two fish, then go feed them. You're my hands. You're my feet. See, when God says to us, you're my hands and feet for this, that doesn't mean that you're on your own. It means that God is choosing to use you as one of his messengers. He empowers you. God's power um, takes what you bring, what you offer, what you do, and multiplies it in a way that only God can. (laughs) You know, as the African proverb uh, says, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try spending a night in a closed room with a mosquito. You know? I think it could be a Minnesota proverb as well. Do you think Jesus needed the loaves and fish to feed all those people? I don't. So why did he ask for them? He asked for them because he wanted people to see um, that when they brought what they had to the table, he would bring what he had to the table. When they offered to serve him with their lives, he would bring his life and his power. When John tells this story of the feeding of 5,000, he adds an interesting line. Um, Right after Jesus asked um, for what they had, John says, Jesus said this to stretch their faith. He already knew what he was going to do. Isn't that interesting? He already knew what he was going to do. You think about that. God already knows what he is going to do through you when you bring what you have to him, when you use your gifts and your abilities, when you serve and you sacrifice your time. He's just waiting to see if you'll bring it. 
And when you do, it'll be multiplied. And not just through you, but for you. Its impact will be multiplied, not only in the lives of others, but also in, in, in your life. Serving is not just for the benefit of others, but it's also the benefit of you. One of the surprising things, I don't know if you noticed this, one of the surprising things about this story here in the Gospel of Mark is there are no oohs or ahs that are caught in this story. What I mean by this is there's no statement of wonder or amazement. You read through the Gospel of Mark and you find time after time this statement that, oh, it's amazed. People were amazed. People were amazed. Not here, not in this story. <laughs> Neither is there an indication of hostility or, or, or confusion. Um, the reactions that usually come along with Jesus' miracles are missing here in Mark's telling of the story. It's as though this crowd is not even aware that anything extraordinary has taken place. So if the crowd's not aware, then... Um, we need to ask, why does Jesus perform this miracle? I mean, why does he feed these 5,000 people out there, you know, in that lonely area, desolate area? I would suggest two reasons. First of all, Jesus performed this miracle to bless people. Keep in mind that these these people weren't necessarily starving. They, they had homes to go to. Probably some of them had, they had money in their pockets. They, they had plenty of food in towns that, uh, you know, were maybe a little distance, but were within walking distance. It wasn't a life or death um, situation. Jesus just, he just wanted to do good. He just wanted to bless people. I mean, they were peasants. Understand this. Most of them were, were probably peasants, and their lives were very ordinary, sometimes quite difficult. He wanted them to know that they mattered. They mattered to him and they mattered to his heavenly father. So he decided to do something good for them. Now, did they, um, did they understand it? I mean, did they turn to him in repentance and, and in faith after this miracle was performed? No. But Jesus seemed to be okay with that, didn't he? He just wanted to bless them, to, to give them a taste of God's goodness and a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. And you've got to believe that um, they went home that day, many of them wondering who this miracle man was and what else he might have to say. And that's why Jesus asks us to do good. To bless people with acts of kindness and, and, and beauty and, and, and grace. He wants us to interrupt the normal flow of their lives. <laughs> to let them know that they matter to someone. And that there's a better way to live. St. Augustine said, since you cannot do good to all, you are to pay special regard to those who by the accidents of time or place or circumstances are brought into closer connection with you. Marilyn Ottinger um, can't stop thinking about it, and neither can her family. There she was, says her daughter Margie, confused, flabbergasted, embarrassed, 
And this guy rescued her. She's talking about when her 89-year-old mom went on a grocery run with some other seniors to the Star Market, a rare unassisted trip since losing her husband last July. Things went fine until checkout line when Marilyn discovered her only credit card had been canceled two days earlier because the account was in her late husband's name. And this amazing person behind her said, don't worry, I'll take care of your groceries. <laughs> that bill wasn't uh, uh, meager. I mean, it was a $109 grocery bill. Marilyn accepted this offer, believing that she would get the guy's contact info and, and, and pay him back later. Margie said, well, she tried to get his name, but he said, no, just, just say a prayer for me. And then, with his good deed done, he simply vanished. <laughs> this gives me chills, a woman wheeling a cart from the store said. That's an amazing story, really, really cool. A man leaving the store agreed. You know, it makes me happy when someone who doesn't really want the credit gets it. They deserve it, right? He said. Margie says, we're trying still to find him. And even if he doesn't want to come forward, we're hoping that he'll know that we're incredibly grateful and that we've already said the prayer <laughs> several times. Margie said, it's amazing to have an angel like that. See, when you do something good for something, someone, something unexpected, something undeserved, what happens is you stop them in their tracks for just even a moment. And they have to ask themselves, why would someone do that for me? In that moment, in that, in that asking, God is able to speak into their lives and draw them a little bit closer to him. <laughs> See, Jesus wanted to bless this crowd. I would suggest that there's a second reason that Jesus performed this miracle. Jesus isn't just concerned uh, with blessing the crowd. He's also concerned with his disciples. He wants them to grow through this experience. That's the second reason he performs this miracle, I think, is to grow his disciples. Think about it for a moment. Did Jesus really need... <laughs> These disciples, their help here? Did he say to himself, you know, I'd love to feed this hungry mob, but if only I had a few people that could help me out. <laughs> of course not. I mean, Jesus was perfectly capable of feeding that multitude without the feeble help of the disciples that he, that he had. Jesus performed the miracle and asked them, um, and asked these 12 to help so he could grow them, their faith, and their understanding of who he was, to grow them as disciples. He wanted to soften their hearts so they would begin to see people as, as he did. He, he wanted to increase their faith so they would learn to trust him even when it, it seemed to be uh, unreasonable. He, he wanted to empower them to mature, uh, to, to ministry, to show them that he could, go, he could do through them what they simply couldn't do themselves if they made themselves available. That's what those 12 baskets were all about. You notice there was a basket for each one of them, a personal reminder that when we bring what we have to Jesus, no matter how little it may seem, he can do more with it than anything we could ever ask or imagine. 
Jesus asks us to do good so we might grow as disciples of his. <laughs> the whole emphasis, this whole emphasis we've been having on, on, on doing good, it, it, it's not just about blessing people and the world around us. It, it, it's a means by which we are transformed into becoming more fully Christ-like people, into a church that are, are his hands and feet in, in, in this city, in South Minneapolis, and in this world. Spiritual formation, see, it, it isn't just a matter of prayer and study and worship. No, it's also a matter of service and, and charity and doing good. Doing good is exciting, not only for the impact it will have on the people around us, but also on the impact it will have on us and on our church. So with those two ends in mind, to bless others and to grow in our Christ-likeness, here's what I want to give you. Okay, we're, Next week, Pastor Jay is going to wrap up this series, but this morning I want to give you this challenge. I want to give you a challenge as we prepare. By the way, this Wednesday, Lenten season begins. The next six weeks as we prepare for Easter. So during these six weeks, I want to give you another challenge. And the simple challenge is this. For six weeks, do good. Find places and areas, ways to do good. Some of you, I know, have already gotten uh, your feet wet by doing good as we have been talking through this uh, during these weeks. But I would like to challenge us to continue to do good, to open our eyes to people around us and do something good in Jesus' name. Now, listen, in a couple of weeks, um, we're going to be able to join together on that outreach Saturday morning um, for a day of service um, to, to do good, to really come together as a whole church body and, and just to help out just because we want to do something good. We want to help out. But I want to challenge you beyond that Saturday. So don't stop, but just it's Saturday. <laughs> Take some time and sit down this afternoon, I know, before the Super Bowl. Sit down and think about some things you might do over the next six weeks. Talk it over maybe with your family. Meet with your small group this week. Talk it over with your small group. As you make your way through the next six weeks, see what Jesus sees and feel what Jesus feels. Then do something good and bless people in some powerful ways. And listen, if you're feeling a little uncomfortable with all this idea of doing good, helping somebody out, stretching yourself, stepping out of your comfort zone, remember those disciples on the hillside there of Galilee. Like them, we could come up with all kinds of reasons why we can't do this, right? We don't have time. We don't have the money. <laughs> you know, it's just not comfortable. We don't have that kind of personality. Let me tell you something. Jesus isn't interested in what you don't have or what you can't do. He simply asks you to do what you can with what you have and leave the rest to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the fact that you want to use us 
to do good, to multiply your kingdom, to share the good news. And God, we, we all feel inadequate. We feel like we can't do this or that. We just don't have the ability or time or strength. But God, as we come to you with what we do have, the meager little bit that we do have, five loaves and two fish of our own lives, God, might you multiply them, use them, for the building of your kingdom. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.